Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. Jared Price, uh, as Gary said, um, my wife is over here, Janelle. I am so pleased to be with you this morning. If I put my Bible on this, this thing's going to keep dropping, so I'm just going to hold it. Um, I'm so glad to be here and open up the Word with you. We've been uh, here in California for uh, about a year, coming to Paseo. I've been here almost two years now, and it's been two years since I've had the opportunity to preach God's Word, so get ready. It's going to be a while. So please pray with me, and then we're going to get into his word together. Lord, thank you so much for this privilege it is to be amongst the people who love you, who love your word, and who generally just want to glorify you with their lives. We love Paseo. We've been so blessed to be here at this church. And God, I pray this morning that we would all come together to grow closer to you, to be in a a position where we are amazed by your character, by your power, by your independence, Lord. And so I thank you for this morning. I, I pray that you would change us by understanding more of who you are today. Praise in your name, amen. Okay, awesome, thank you. Um, so while Matt's doing that, this morning I just want to open up by starting with a couple different questions for you. Now you can write the answer down if you want because I know some people are uh, note takers and they want to write uh, questions down, but it's going to be very quick. It's going to be one-worded answers to each question and I'm going to ask you seven questions. I just want you to engage a little bit with me and try to answer. That would be great. I'm, you know, six four. Uh, perfect. Thank you. The Try to answer these questions as honestly as you can with the uh, whatever comes to your brain first. Whatever comes to your mind initially, use that as your answer. So the first question, here we go. What do you want most? What do you want most? Moving on, number two. Remember, you got to go quick. What do you think about most? Three, what do you spend your money on? Four, what do you do with your leisure time? As rare as that might be for some of you, when you find yourself with time you just have, what do you, what do, you do with it? Number five, whose company do you enjoy? Husbands, there is a correct answer. Verse six, who and what do you admire? And lastly, verse, uh, not verse, number seven, what do you laugh at? What do you laugh at? All right. Stop. You can't change your answers. Whatever's in your mind, whatever's on your paper, that's it. That's all. Well, hopefully you've been honest and you haven't put your church hat on yet. And what we see here with these seven questions, this is A.W. Tozer's and the knowledge of the holy. This is his seven rules for self-discovery. If you want to ask yourself seven questions to find out what are you pursuing in life? What are the things that you enjoy the most? What are the things that you, you gravitate the most? He says, if you ask yourself honest, and you answer these seven questions honestly, you'll find generally what you're pursuing after. When I, in my own life, I ask myself these questions at random times this week, and to be completely honest with you, very rarely was my pursuit God. Janelle and I are in the process right now of trying to close on a house. 
and it is a nightmare. I mean, trying to do all the phone calls, the inspections, worrying about termites, and that's just going to be a disaster if there's termites in there. It's an older house, and so we're trying to figure out the people who remodeled it, you know, what are they stuffing the walls to try and hide? And we're just trying to figure out all these different things, and very rarely this week was my focus on what do I want the most to glorify God, and I was like, just get me through this house process, right? And so this morning, and especially with this no see and Savior, what, what we want to do is we just want to take a break and a momentary separation from the chaos around us to realign our hearts and our minds to pursuing our Savior, Jesus Christ, to pursuing a right relationship with God. And we've been doing that by focusing on different attributes of God. We've seen a lot of them so far. And today we're going to engage in one called aseity, God's aseity or his independence. And essentially all that means is that he is the uncaused cause. He is the unmovable mover. He is the one who has existed from eternity past and there was nothing else that existed before him. He is independent of all of creation, self-sustaining, independent God. And what that means is this for us. God does not need you. God does not need me either, so it's not just you. It's not, he doesn't need me either. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything of which he has created for any other purpose. He is totally God, always in and of himself, perfect. And we're going to look at that through a little snippet in the book of Acts. Now, let me first say, if, if you're an unbeliever here in the room or if you have uh, friends who are unbelievers and you want to talk to them about this message, um, let me just encourage you with this, that I am so glad, first of all, if you're here in this room, that you are here. This is the exact place you should be. And I pray that you would just take everything that is being said from God's word and challenge it, investigate it, ask questions of it, and study with us what God's word has to say about who the character of God is. So with that, we're going to look at this passage in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 17. We're going to be in verses 16 through 34. As we look together at Paul's sermon uh, on Mars Hill, the sermon to the Athenians, where his central point that he's going to talk to these philosophers, philosophers? that's what I was looking for, I think, right there. What he's going to talk to them about is God's aseity. And the big idea is this. I'm going to try and follow as much as I can Paul's train of thought. And his train of thought goes a little bit like this. We as humans, we need God. I need God. But God, he needs nothing. And the amazing part of this dichotomous relationship is that God gave himself for me. I need God. God needs nothing, but God gave himself for me. So, first point, I need God. Humanity's search for answers. If you're in your Bibles, you can open up. Acts 17, verse 6 says this. Now, Paul, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, to do any good Bible study, we always need to ask a central question. What is the context? Right? Context is king, as I like to tell my youth group students. And what's going on right here is Paul is just got to Athens. He was on a missionary journey with his, uh, his friend Silas. And they were going in and they were teaching the Bereans in, just in the previous passage. And the people from Thessalonica, where they were before that, 
came and started disrupting things. They were trying to cause a little unrest. And so Timothy and Silas were like, Paul, you're too outspoken. You're too bold. We've got to get you out of here. Otherwise, you're going to end up in jail. So they put him on a ship and sent him over to Athens, which was probably a mistake because now they left Paul, who's crazy bold, all by himself in a city full of idols. Right? So he's going to get into some trouble, naturally. And before this, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is all about the Acts of the Apostles. And in chapter 15, uh, something revolutionary happened for the Christian church. Paul and Peter were given information, a revelation from Jesus saying that the gospel would now go to the Gentiles. The gospel wasn't just meant for Jewish believers or people who would convert to Jewish customs. Now the gospel is, is free to all for anybody to come into a right relationship with God. And so that's kind of where we've been taken on this journey. And Paul now finds himself on a layover in Athens. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas, and he's on, his, he's on a layover. If you've ever been in an airplane or an airport, and you've looked at that board, and it says flight delayed, and you find yourself with some time, what do you naturally do? At least for me, I like to walk around, you know, see what kind of stores are, maybe grab a burger, grab a drink, something, watch a movie. Uh, or if you've had an overnight layover, you might find yourself going into the city, walking around. And that's what Paul does. He goes into Athens, and this is what he finds. The city was full of idols. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I want you to notice back in verse 17, who does Paul go to first? The synagogue, right? The Jews. He goes to those people who he feels super naturally comfortable with. If I was on a layover on a jet and I found myself walking through a city and I found a little coffee shop titled Jabba's Java, a Star Wars themed coffee shop, I would feel right at home. I'd walk in, we could have some conversations about like Kashyyyk where uh, Chewie was born and you know we could, we could just have a lot of conversation. I was a huge Star Wars nerd. For Paul, he goes to where he feels comfortable. He feels naturally at home in the Jewish world. Why? He was a Pharisee. He was one of the best teachers of the law. He was what he called blameless according to the law. And so he can engage in natural conversation with these Jews. I mean, if you think about the place where you feel natural, where you walk in, you're like, these are my people. For you, that might be Home Depot. That is not me. I walk in, I, I screw, is that a screwdriver? I don't know. You know. Maybe you can talk shop all day long. Maybe you like um, home goods or world market like my wife where I walk in and I, underst- I don't understand how they stay in business. But maybe that's your people. Paul goes to where he naturally feels comfortable. And the Jews answer the question that all of humanity is trying to answer in a, in a different way. All of humanity has been asking a question really from the beginning, why am I here and what is my purpose? Why am I here and what is my purpose? And the Greeks have answered that in an interesting way, as we're going to find out with the idols. And the Jews had come to answer that in a unique way as well. They're, for them, life answer is they were there because God created them. 
created Adam and Eve in the beginning. They have the Torah. But somewhere along the way, they fell into a ritualistic, legalistic way of belief, thinking that if they continue to do good, God will reward them. And it became a cause and effect relationship with God. And so they answered the life question by saying life is fulfilled by following rules and traditions that God and the people of Israel had passed down. Today, that would be any form of works-based religion, any form of a belief system that says, why are we here? Well, God made us or, um, you know, you can go into the Scientology aspect where, you know, we just kind of evolved out of some soup and... uh, and I'm here, and as a cause-effect relationship for my life, if I do good, then good things will happen to me. And that's kind of how the Jews lived their life, and they found that to be satisfying. And so Paul reasons with the Jews, but then he goes to some other people. He's not satisfied yet. He goes into uh, the marketplace to talk with strangers. And he walks in there and just pretty much is talking to whoever he can find. You can imagine Paul, he's just walking, he sees somebody who's just sitting down at a bench, and he's just the awkward guy who sits down next to him and says, hey, how you doing? You ever heard about a guy named Jesus? Like, I've done that once in Chicago. It did not go well. It was a very, very abrupt conversation. So he goes and he talks to strangers, but he doesn't stop with just people who he's comfortable with or just people who are maybe strangers who who are neutral. He even goes to those who are directly verbally opposing him. He goes to these Athenians who are Stoics and the Epicureans. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, first, these Epicureans, these, these would be like my generation today. These are the pleasure seekers. Epicurus was the guy who started this. And he held that pleasure was the chief goal of life, with the pleasure most worth enjoying being the life of tranquility, free of pain, disturbing passions or superstitious fears about anxiety, death, heaven, and hell. He was a deist. God is just kind of out there, but he's a grandfather in the sky. He doesn't really care what you do and don't do. And so Paul's talking with these Epicureans, my generation, who just wants to relax, live a, a morally social life. And they're, they're finding his way of how he answers life's questions incredibly intriguing. And the same with the Stoics on the other side. So the Stoics were followers of this guy named Zeno, who taught that uh, we should live harmoniously with one another, but we should really focus on becoming rational, intellectually savvy, and being self-sufficient, helping out our fellow humanity. They would be the social workers today, or maybe Eastern religions where there's a pantheon of gods or of such, and, and Stoics generally we're concerned about the, the needs of humanity, the poor, those who um, couldn't help themselves. And so they were seen as really good people. And now Paul is trying to evangelize these people who, who seem like very good people. Like why, why should they change their perspective on life when really they're doing a lot to help their fellow humanity? And so you kind of come to this place, especially in our time and age, when You have two groups of people who are respected culturally, but Paul still goes to them and still engages them in this evangelistic effort, even though they're not hurting anybody. And I know our culture tends to say that if someone isn't hurting anybody, if somebody isn't isn't harming each other, if their belief isn't necessarily negative, why should we go and try and change it? 
right? Why would we, if, you know, believe what you want to believe, just don't push it on me. But look at how Paul, look at what Paul's inner being was like. In verse 16, it says his spirit was provoked within him. He saw that the city was full of idols. It was provoked. That word provoked, I love this. Get what this means. It means that his heart was eating him. That's the idiomatic phrase. His heart was eating him or his stomach was hot. It's this emotional intensity where he could not control himself. He sees people living in a way that is contrary to the God of Scripture and he can't control himself. He is so provoked that he can't face social norms and he goes outside what is accepted in culture to go and speak with these people. I just got to pause there and ask myself this question. How often do I find myself provoked by those around me? Or do I find that I'm often just, I'll wait for another time to have that conversation with somebody. Like, I'll let them, you know, they're, they're, they're a good person. They're not doing anything wrong right now. Maybe, maybe if they ask me about Jesus, then I'll talk to them. Paul's love for his fellow human and his love for the supremacy and worth of God compelled him to speak with others. And what he finds here is that he comes in and finds this pagan culture in Athens and begins to speak the truth of the gospel. And if we continue on, he goes from this identifying, yes, I need God. Even the Athenians knew they needed God. They had the pantheon of gods. He goes in here to then describe to them how God himself truly needs nothing. So, verse 22 Follow along with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. The true answer to our most desperate question is the self-sufficient, completely independent creator God. I want you to notice how Paul begins this conversation. The Areopagus first to understand this. This is like Greece, uh, the Greeks supreme court. This is where they're going to bring all the issues of intellectual uh, thought process theories as well as courts and crime cases to this little hearing ground where they're going to surround a person and let them make their case before them. In Greece today, the Areopagus is actually still their supreme court. It would be their version of our supreme court. And Paul comes up, begins his speech, and one of the first things I want us to notice is that Paul is very respectful. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He might have a little bit of a hidden meaning here, you know, like, you guys are too religious. But, like, he, he comes in here and he's like, you're very religious. He's kind of praising them for a second there in one way or what would appear to their ears. And for as I pass along, I observed objects of your worship and I found an altar with this inscription. Notice he says, you're sincere. You are actually worshiping these gods. You actually care to sacrifice, give up a little bit of your life to worship these gods. You recognize you have a need of God. 
And then he begins to switch it on them. This probably happened over a couple of hours, but Luke summarizes it for us in a couple of minutes. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. I think what Paul had in mind here was what is written in Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. In Isaiah, it says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? Or what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Paul is telling the Greeks, you created these temples. How could a God exist in something you created? That's not who the Lord of heaven and earth is. That's not who the supreme being is. He's not even served by human hands as though he needed anything. Right here, he is getting into the central doctrine of a Sadie, that God is completely independent of his creation. He does not need anything that he created. In fact, he... If I could throw up this kind of logical statement, I think this is what Paul is getting at. If God is originator and sustainer of all things, then God needs nothing of which he created, nor can he be served by that which he sustains. He is giving me right now life, breath, the ability to read. He is sustaining my life. It's not something we often think about, right, on a day-to-day basis. I'm not thinking as I'm driving down the road that God is enabling me to live right now. But he is the, not only the creator of all things, he is the very sustainer of it. And Paul's argument is, how can God be served by that which he sustains? He's serving himself by sustaining us. And, and the question that some people will then ask is, wait a minute, hold on. But I do serve God. I do do things for God. I do service, you know. Like there are people right now suffering with my children doing child care, and they are serving, doing that because they love God, right? How, how does that work? Well, consider Jesus' words. I'll read it for you in Luke seventeen ten. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Uh, I have a long quote by John Frame, but I'm just going to summarize it. Essentially, in John Frame's systematic theology, he talks about how The only people who serve God are those God has first sustained to serve him. No one serves God unless God has allowed them to serve him. Even our very service is an act of God's grace to us. That he gives us the ability to give something back to him. And a lot of people like to point out money as well. Like, okay, but I, but I give money. I give of my, my tithes and I see that leave my bank account every week or month and that's real. Like I'm giving that. Titus 1.7, a bunch of other passages in the New Testament says you, you have not given what you haven't, you've given nothing that you haven't been given. You are only a manager, a steward of what God has given to you. One of the things that I struggle with is that, you know, if I do things for God, shouldn't God then do something for me? I remember this week I had the opportunity to go jump out of an airplane. And 
it was an amazing opportunity, really fun. Uh, but I, I remember being in the plane at about 10,000 feet and looking out the window. I mean, like, what am I doing? <laughs> this is insane. And I began to pray in that moment. And I, I found myself praying according to who God is. And I was like, God, you know, I know you're gracious, loving, kind God. I've been trying to worship you this week. I'm trying to love my wife. I haven't beat my kids too badly this week. And I'm just going through. And I realized what I was doing. I was trying to get God to open up my parachute. I was trying to get him to be like, like, come through for me here, God. Like, I'm, I'm praying to you. I love you. I've been doing things for you. And then I realized that in that moment, in the airplane, and so then I started praying the other way, like, God, no, I know you don't do things based upon what I do and that you're good. And then I'm like, well, I'm just trying to earn his favor in the other way now. And then I realized he's not going to open up my parachute. I'm going to die. This is it. I'm just going to splat and hit the ground. Gosh, it's the internal war, and we, I find myself in that struggle all the time of, of thinking through this works-based religious concept, but that's not how God works. And we don't want him to work that way. Because if he did, we would all end up not having our parachute open up, right? This is the gracious, amazing God. And, and Paul's point here, and I think of what he probably explained even further to the Athenians, is that God is not dependent upon our praise for his power. In the Greek culture, in the time, like, to worship the gods, especially like the god Zeus, if you worshiped and praised him, that gave him power, and then his power would be brought to you for your benefit. And so there's this reciprocal relationship going on, but that's not who God is. We don't have a, a Will Ferrell elf movie type theology. All right, what I mean by that is if you've seen the movie Elf and, and this scene and him and Santa are trying to get this rocket on this sleigh, right, because there's not enough like Christmas cheer power for the sleigh. And so then Jovi goes out and she's like, oh, yeah, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is by singing loud for all to hear. So she starts singing and then they capture it on camera and the cute little girl in her bed starts singing and people all around the world start singing and all of a sudden this this clausometer on the, on the sleigh just rises up and then that sleigh begins to fly and Santa's powered by your praise. That's ridiculous. That is not how God works. God isn't up in heaven trying to strap rockets to angels, trying to get them to like fly down like, oh, please just pray to me and then I can send an angel with a rocket. No, that's not how he works. God is completely independent of our praise, independent of our gifts, independent of our service. He is the all-powerful, all-sufficient, amazing, all-sustaining God. The very breath that I breathe right now, he's giving me as a gift. Each and every day is a gift to glorify him. I get the ability and the gift to enjoy him. And how Paul changes this flow is he's like, no, Athenians, he's independent. He doesn't need you. But amazingly enough, he gave himself for you. He transitions, verse 26 is, is his beginning point to dive into this next point that God gave himself for me. He says, I'm in the wrong passage, here we go. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Get what Paul is saying there. I know this isn't my sermon to talk about the, the supremacy and the sovereignty of God, but he's saying God is sovereign. 
He is made from one man, from Adam, every nation of mankind and determined in his sovereign power, he has determined their boundaries. He's determined where the United States would start and stop, where Russia would start and stop, where North Korea would start and stop. He is the all-powerful supreme God. He is not out of control. He's absolutely in control. And he's also determined our very existence and how we are made and how we desire to answer those two questions in our life of why am I here and what is my purpose. Look at what he says. We are created that we should seek God. Verse 27, seek God. Feel their way toward him and find him. Sounds a whole lot like no see and savor, doesn't it? A whole lot like you should, we are created with the purpose of trying to find God, to seek our way, to try to either intellectually, emotionally connect. Pastor Gary talked about different pathways. In some way, find our way to God. Why? To find him and have a right relationship with a personal God. It's not a, Paul's like, it's not about this statue, this graven image that you bow down to that does nothing, that's emotionless, that's expressionless, and truly has no power. It is about the personal God who then gave himself for me. And look what Paul says, how he kind of concludes this. In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own prophets, poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Yeah, Paul talked about sin. I imagine in the lengthy of this conversation, he would have addressed man's falling short of God's glory in sin and that there needs to be repentance because he has fixed a day, verse 31, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's like, he's not far from you. You're worshiping God. You're worshiping this idol. He's not far from you. In fact, he actually came in a human form. He was crucified on a cross for your sin so that your sin may be put upon him and his righteousness may be extended to you and you may have a right relationship with the one true God. Through the saving act of Jesus Christ, we might be forgiven of our sin. He, he answers the two questions. Why are we made to seek, feel, find our way to God? And what is our purpose? To enjoy God and glorify him together, as the wonderful catechism says. To enjoy God, glorify him together. Paul later says in the book of Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Today, people are running in so many different directions, so many different paths. Even, even in our church, even in our Christian community, I, I'll be completely honest with you. Today, I, this week, I've been running all over the place in my mind, 
not pursuing the Lord, trying to pursue a house, trying to pursue my goodness, good work ethic in my job, and we're running in all crazy amount of different directions when the only thing that truly matters is worshiping and glorifying God, enjoying Him forever. And yes, our jobs matter, and yes, our families matter, and we're to glorify Him in everything. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether we eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. Every bit of life should be toward His praise and His glory. And the amazing thing is He needs none of it. He needs none of it. Never once has God ever said, I I crave it, I need your praise. No, His grace is enabling us to sing, to worship, to enjoy Him forever. So let me just close with a few different challenges. First, consider those seven questions by A.W. Tozer. You know, one of A.W. Tozer's famous quotes is this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. As you consider this series and as you consider reviewing maybe some of these attributes or learning them for the first time, let your heart be overwhelmed with the character of God and let that influence your pursuit each and every day to align your life to God's direction. And then I want to challenge and ask, How far are you provoked to engage with those around you? Are you provoked enough to engage with those you feel comfortable with? The Home Depot people, the Home Goods people? Are you you provoked in your spirit enough to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that someone might be saved and know the goodness and grace of God? Don't be satisfied with just the fact that someone's maybe a good person or just because they're your neighbor and it's really awkward to go talk to them, don't be satisfied there. Be provoked and let the Spirit of God provoke you into action. And then I want to encourage you as well that in your evangelism, like Paul, you can center it on the character of God and just let that be the topic of conversation. Sometimes we feel like we have to come up or we don't feel like we should do evangelism because we don't know all the right arguments or what if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to. And Just focus the conversation on the character and the person of God. It's all, it's all Paul does. It's all he goes back to. Who is God? Let that be your discussion. And this week I pray that you would take to heart Paul's flow here. That I need God, God needs nothing, but the amazing part is God gave himself for me. If you're an unbeliever in the room, lastly, I I just want to say this to you. I want to close with Pascal's wager, and and maybe if if you have a friend, you can share this with him as well. Sometimes people would say, "I, I have no need of God. I missed you on the first point, Jared. I don't need God. My life is sufficient. I'm good. I've heard that so many times. Now nah, I'm good, right? I want to encourage you to consider Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a philosopher, and he was a, a, a guy in 1800s, and one of his f- most famous wagers was this. Whether you are a gambling person or you think gambling is ridiculous, you can agree this, that the best or the worst possible gamble 
would be to live a life without ever trying to consider who God is. Because what you're saying, what you're gambling is the possibility of eternal destruction and death. You're gambling away an eternal life with God. It is, in fact, the absolute best odds out of any gambling endeavor. I know we're talking to church about gambling. What is this? It's the best odds of any gambling endeavor to at least consider who God is and what he has said in his word. It is at least the best gambling odds ever to read his word and at least try to figure out if it's true or not. For if you don't do that, you've already given up all of your odds or your your hope of ever winning. You've essentially just put yourself in the worst possible position you could. I love that. It's very simple, very straightforward, and hopefully as a result of it, you can start a Bible study. Let me pray for us, and I, and I just hope that you've been encouraged by God's word this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to again open up your word. It's, it's been a while, but I so love studying your word and seeing more of who you are. Thank you, God, for convicting me on my sin this week. Thank you for convicting me of my misdirection. And I pray for those in here this morning that not only would they be encouraged by the fact that though you needed nothing, you still chose to be in a relationship with us, chose to create us just so that we could enjoy you. And Lord, I pray that that amazing truth would provoke us into action, provoke us into speech with those around us, provoke us to not remain silent about the goodness, the grace, the power, and the mercy of your son, Jesus Christ. Who died on a cross for my sin. Who made a way that I could be in a relationship with the supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing, amazing, independent God. We love you, Lord, and we now open up our mouths and worship of your glory.